You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode number 61. I'm a doctor. I've lived for over 2,000 years. I am Scottish. I can complain about things. Shush. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. Today we're discussing the Ninth Doctor two-part story, Empty Child, and The Doctor Dances. Joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? Good. So this is a uh, a landmark episode in many ways. It's uh, uh, it marks the entry of uh, Stephen Moffat into writing for Doctor Who. It uh, is award winning. It's one of the most uh, well uh, liked episodes. Uh, a lot of fans regarded as one of the best. Um, it introduces Captain Jack Harkness and uh, you know another element. So this is going to be a, a fun. Discussion. We're going to talk about both episodes concurrently, uh, as sort of as one discussion, uh, because it's one, it's one story. story. It's one story. So, uh, just mm-hmm. to quote, sort, of, sort of, uh, where are we in the in the in the uh, Doctor Who timeline and our, our real world timeline? This uh, these episodes were broadcast on May twenty first and May twenty eighth of two thousand five. Those those were the original broadcasts on the BBC. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and it has uh, Rose and Jack Harkness as the companions. These were episodes nine and 10 out of the 13 episodes of uh, Chris Eccleston's season. Uh, and which, which, which means after this two part story, we only have one more to go because we've already co- for Christopher Eccleston because we've already covered his regeneration story. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Thank you for uh, you anticipated uh, that. So, uh, we'll be covering Boomtown in a, uh, an upcoming episode. And uh, and then we'll we're on to uh, uh, ten. We're on to uh, David Tennant. Uh, so and maybe we'll do a, like at the end of uh, our discussion on Boomtown. Maybe we'll sort of wrap up um, this this season. And since we're not able to do that with the regeneration episode, mm-hmm. um, so let me play the sound of the trailer for Empty Child, and then we'll get into our discussion. What exactly is this thing? No idea. And why are we chasing it? It's mauve and dangerous. And about 30 seconds from the centre of London. Hello? Mommy? Who's that me, Mommy? You mustn't let him touch you. Mommy, Mommy, Mommy. Are you a doctor? I have my moments. They've all got the same injuries. Right down to the scar on the back of the hand. think of myself as a criminal. I bet you do. Rose can scream at the best of them. <laughs> so, uh, yes, that is the empty child. Uh, I, I was I was thinking every mom must have flashbacks when she hears when she watches this episode because, frankly, my kids are the empty child. Mommy, mommy, please let me in, mommy. <laughs> Go away. I'm using the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> so the basic uh, the basic plot, um, Rose and the Doctor are on the TARDIS. They're chasing this metallic uh, object that the Doctor has discovered going through the time vortex. Um, it's mauve, which is the uh, universal uh, color for danger. 
um, which I, I agree. I, 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 love, <laughs> I love the interaction he has with Rose about that because she asks, well, what about red? You know, like red alert. And he says, well, in the galaxy, that just means camp. And it's caused all it's caused all kinds of problems. All that <laughs> dancing in response to emergency appeals. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they end up in uh, London, 1941, during the Blitz. Uh, Rose meets Captain Jack Harkness, a, a rogue time agent. And uh, it turns out he's a responsible hyper- for the for this object flying through time, the time vortex. A hypersexualized Han Solo. Oh yeah, oh, yep. like, over the top. We'll talk about that. Uh, the Doctor encounters a group of homeless children uh, who's uh, being terrorized by this em- empty child, quote unquote, wearing a gas mask. Um, and uh, if you know if the they, if the child touches you, bad things happen. Um, it causes the child is causing this some sort of strange plague to spread throughout London, um, creating these uh, effectively zombies, and um, which also have gas masks and take on the behaviors of the child, which principally mm-hmm. consists of trying to find his mummy. The right. recurring creepy quote is, are you my mummy? And we get bunches of variations on that. And he says very little else. Um, so that's part of what makes him empty is that he just has this recurring fixation and you can't get him to talk about anything else other than trying to find his mummy. And he also has weird abilities like the ability Mm. to talk through the TARDIS phone, which at this point is just a disconnected phone. It's not connected Mm -hmm. to anything. Um, Also, he can make radios play and gramophones and monkeys clashing cymbals. He can can project his presence through all kinds of weird devices like that. Right. And we the this phrase, are you my mummy, becomes very famous am- among Doctor Who fans. And in fact, it comes back later on uh, in the 12th Doctor's time um, during Mummy on the Orient Express. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a bit down the road. But it is it is something that's become, you know, sort of part of the insider lore on, among Doctor Who fans, and it is an effectively creepy episode. Personally, now, I kind of had a different take on the last episode we watched, which was Father's Day, compared to many fans. A lot of fans don't like it that much. I thought it was fine, and I have something of a similar reaction to this two-parter with The Empty Child and the Doctor Dances. A lot of fans really think of them highly, and I think, yeah, they're they're okay. They're above average for this period, maybe, but they they don't grab me the way later Stephen Moffat episodes do. I mean, mm. I would, in terms of what really grabs me, um, Blink with the first appearance of the Weeping mm. Angels, or Silence in the Library and Forest of the Dead with the first appearance of River Song and the Vashtanarada. Those I think are much better than the doctor dances and the empty child. This is it's if it's an effective creepy monster of the week episode, but there's nothing that special about it. And in fact, when we get into part 2, I've got some significant criticisms. Well, I mean the the one of the the disagreements with your take in, in a sense, which is your take is perfectly valid and just because something wins an award doesn't mean that it's better. Uh, 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 I'll refer you to the Academy Awards um, is <laughs> and the Grammys and, you know, the Emmys, but, <laughs> all, uh, awards, yeah. all award shows. But it did win a, a Hugo Award, 
for this for the the this, the the show, which is a significant science fiction award, which is very interesting. Um, I, I I don't know that it it doesn't at all invalidate your your feelings about it. Um, I like the episode. Uh, I I I prefer this one to the last one, but it does have some of the significant. While it has some of the significant Stephen Moffat strengths, it also has his weaknesses on display as well. And one of those is his tendency to always want um, the happy ending that everybody lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll, and I'm kind of jumping to the end. And this is the archetypal episode for that. Yes. This right. is, the, you know, the no, nothing, nothing bad uh, remains at the end of this episode, uh, you know, essentially. Um and so it's, it's, it's sort of like, I mean, it depends yeah. on how you feel about whether that's a thing that should happen or not. Well, so let's talk about that, because one of the things that's happened repeatedly in the history of the show, I mean, in story after story, not everybody lives. And mm-hmm. sometimes everybody dies, except for the doctor and his companions. And um, so this has been a show, even though it's a kid's show, it's been very real about the fact that in dangerous situations, people die. And so when this episode comes along, it's something special that and the doctor is like, he is actually, I mean, depending on how you want to interpret it, he's literally praying for um, give Mm -hmm. me a day where where everybody lives, because this is something new and special and is not the norm. For mm-hmm. the show right. and taken on those terms, it is something special. But then, as you say, this becomes a fixation of Stephen Moffat's where as we progress through the rest of the show, I mean, sure, people die, but we keep having these recurring happy endings where they shouldn't mm-hmm. be as happy as they are. Well, the the classic example of that is Face the Raven and then the episodes that come after we right. we were told Cla- Clara dies, you know, that the death of the companion yep. that everyone she's so beloved, everybody loves cute Clara and she died and oh the wrenching heartbreak. Oh, by the way, she's not really dead. Yeah. Well, I mean, we see it again. We see it again with Bill exactly. where you know, oh Bill died and oh but we're going to bring her back for the Christmas special as this duplicate memory thing. Glass yeah. thing, but, and, but even and, before and that, even, she didn't even die. Amy, Amy, and Rory have this tragic fate, which just means they have to relocate to another time, right? And, and live out their life happily ever, ever after. after. Yeah. Yes, uh, yeah, and I mean, even with Bill, it's not even that we only saw the uh, reconstruction of her memories. She was renewed re- and you know regenerated into herself by um, Wet Heather, and they go off yep. into uh, you know to explore the universe. So yeah, it's this. It's this recurring and on the one hand, you know, fans love the characters and they don't want them to die. Um, And they like the idea that the the characters live, but it's it becomes cheap after a while. And that's the Mm -hmm. thing is it cheapens the emotions that you're trying to elicit out of us. And, you know, it's Mm -hmm. sort of like, you know, some of the complaints that used to be about Star Trek, you know, uh, they put Captain Kirk into jeopardy. But you know Captain Kirk can't die. He doesn't the Gorn isn't gonna kill Captain Kirk on that planet because he needs to be the captain of the starship next week. And it's it's sort of the yeah. same thing. You're removing no, no, all jeopardy. No, no no Starfleet captain ever dies until Discovery. And uh, then they sort of start dropping like flies. But, no, I mean we've seen Star- <laughs> like even in original series we see. Um, oh, I mean, I mean of that that oh, of the ship we're following. Oh, exactly, right. exactly. Yes, yeah. uh, we don't want to spoil anything with Discovery, but uh, 
Yeah, there we <laughs> people die there too. People die in Discovery. It's the it's the new grittier Star Trek. But that's that's for our other <laughs> podcast, by the way. Uh, tune in for that. We're going to be talking about. Uh, we've talked recently about Star Trek Discovery, the first half of the first season, and coming up, uh, we'll we'll be talking about Star Trek Discovery's second half, including the finale. Uh, that's on our Secrets of Movies and TVs uh, shows uh, podcast that you can find at sqpn.com. Uh, look for that. Subscribe. So good, good cross promotion there, Jimmy. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so let you know. Let's kind of go back and talk about this episode uh, in itself, apart from uh, the the way that uh, Stephen Moffat kind of uh, frames it. You know, we get some really unique things. So, what 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 do we have? One one unique thing about it is it takes place during a particular air raid on one particular night in London in nineteen forty one. In nineteen forty one, and this is probably the darkest time. Of of World War Two for Great Britain. Right, I mean, the right. people were America hopeless. Is, yeah, America isn't even involved yet. Right, we'd no. been sending Lend Lee stuff over, and there were volunteers, Americans, as Captain Jack uh, is posing as, you know, volunteer American airmen and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But in but America has not entered the war. Pearl Harbor hasn't happened yet, and you know, and the the British people are standing firm. They're the last. <laughs> Holdouts against the Nazi horde, uh, right. trying to you know waiting to cross the English Channel, um, and things were pretty seemed pretty bleak. I mean, imagine living in a city where bombs are falling out of the sky on a constant basis, on a on a regular basis, and people are just you know randomly dying. A bomb falls on one place and not on another, and people are dead. I mean, it's it, you know it's 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 important, I think, in some ways uh, for us as human beings to remember the horror of this. this of this happening at war. Um, and this is where Rose and the doctor dr- kind of sort of dropped in. Yeah. Well, and this actually is fascinating for an American audience. Now, obviously it touches on very deep cultural memories for the original British audience, but <clears throat> Americans never had the experience of being Mm-mm. bombed in this way. The Japanese did like attach some bombs to balloons and float them over the right. West coast of America. And they weren't very effective. So we never had this kind of Correct. nightly, here come the planes, we've, and we've got to evacuate all the children to the countryside, which is incidentally mm-hmm. the premise, the launching point for the Chronicles of Narnia books. Exactly. Yep. That's why the Pepsi children the same in the same country. Thing. I was yeah. just thinking the same thing. And the doctor even mentions to the children that he meets in this story, I mean, you guys should have been evacuated by now. Why aren't you in the countryside? And it turns out they're a bunch of kind of like rogue, runaway, orphan children mm-hmm. Who some of whom were evacuated to the countryside and came back and ran away. Yep. But, right, but this is my yeah. my point is that we didn't have this kind of bombing experience that the British people had to suffer. Right. And to see Rose like hanging, you know, from that balloon in the middle of a blitz is a very affecting scene. Yes, exactly. Um, that really gives you a, a sense of, of the horror of this. Wearing mm. her Union Jack shirt. Wearing yeah. her Union Jack shirt, yeah. <laughs> so I looked up the barrier balloons, and apparently it was a system of these of these inflatables that they they tethered all over the city um, in the hopes that the uh, German planes would run into them, essentially. Mm-hmm. The, the idea was that they would follow the, the uh, wings and, and propellers of the German planes. Uh, they weren't all that effective. The planes either flew around them or flew above them. You know, it was sort of. Right. Uh, it was not. It was not the most effective tactic. Um, 
it was there was a, a funny moment. They're not. They, I think they weren't quite sure when they landed the time frame they landed because mm-hmm. the doctor runs into this nightclub, gets mm-hmm. up on stage and asks, uh, you know, says, "I'm looking for something that would have crashed into the middle of London with a loud bang about a month ago," and you know, yeah, every night things are crashing into London with yeah. a loud bang. <laughs> that was a clever, and I, I like I like the doctor's expression when he realizes what time it is, and he just kind of goes, "Oh, <laughs> yeah." <laughs> um, uh, the, another uh, fun moment was uh, was Rose kind of insisting, like, "Why isn't the doctor scanned for the alien tech? Why doesn't he just?" And she uses the phrase, "Why don't you just spock it?" <laughs> yeah, exactly. I thought was a great Star Trek reference. Which then is is part of what helps her bond with Captain Jack when he does do a scan for alien tech. See, now this is this is what a professional this is what a professional does. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) So, um, you know, let's talk about the the homeless kids uh, in in the doctor's interaction first with uh, with that. Um, I I I thought the the kids tended to be very well dressed. I I don't know if you noticed that. That's sort of a. I think it's a sort of a. I don't know whether the kids actually were that way, but it's I think it's how we remember kids from that era uh, that they tended to dress better and, and, and you know, be well, more presentable. I think that, that probably was fairly appropriate for the time period because, you know, the idea of wearing yeah. T-shirt and jeans was more for workers. You know, yeah. you, you would work in the, the factory wearing T-shirt and jeans. You wouldn't right. be out on the street on an average day. Now you wouldn't be, you know, three piece suit with tie and, you know, the pocket square and all that, but you would be far more dressed up than we normally do today. That's for sure. Right. Yeah. Rose of of any, yeah. Rose of, if of anybody in this is, is the one who's really dressed down and bizarrely with the union Jack t-shirt. Well, Uh, I would, I would, sorry. I would suppose with the kids that they would have dressed something like that, but wow, those clothes would have smelled really bad by this yeah. point. Yes, you know, you mentioned like the kids being sent to the countryside. There's a, there's some subtle writing in here which I thought was very interesting. At one point, one of the, the one of the children says to the doctor, I, "I was sent to a farm, but there was a man, so I came back." Yeah, and and it sort of alludes to the tales of how many of these kids who were sent to the countryside. They were abused by the people that they were sent to live mm-hmm. with, uh, either exactly. taken advantage of to, as sort of a virtual slave labor and mm-hmm. or worse. Uh, and beaten and you, or. Yeah, you got to get that sense here. Uh, I, I got to you know, give Moffat credit for subtlety in writing without you know, whacking the, 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 the viewer over the head with with the message right. of what, what he's trying to get across. I, I give him credit for that. Um, I, I did like the doctor's comment, which is. Um, I don't know whether it's Marxism or a West End musical. You know the the kids rising up to take what they what they're owed. Uh, that was uh, that was good. One of the things I liked was the sensibility that Nancy brings to this. Nancy is sort of the leader of the children. She's a bit mm-hmm. older than the rest. She's a late teenager, and she is the one who sort of secures every every night when there's a raid. Um, around dinner time, she finds a house where the family has gone into hiding in the bunkers that they have, which are kind of makeshift. And the one we see, actually, it's, I looked it up. It's historically, you know, accurate to the period. It's made out of like corrugated metal mm-hmm. and it's really flimsy. I mean, a bomb falls on that. It's not going to help right. you much. It's, it's um, more for preventing like shrapnel than it is for an actual direct hit. 
Yeah. And uh, so so anyway, while the family is in there during the Blitz, Nancy finds a house that has dinner on the table, then brings in these other kids. And she's like in charge. You're going to take one piece of meat each. We are guests in this house. You're going to leave things in a respectable condition. So, yeah, they're stealing the food, but it's it by necessity. And they are going to be respectful of the people who've provided it for them mm-hmm. within those parameters. And I, I like that a lot. I, that's a sensibility that's not shared by all of the kids. Um, realistically, some of the boys couldn't care less about these rules that Nancy is imposing on them. But it's something that, you know, for the feels right for the period and also is just a nice thing in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we find out that Nancy has some connection to this this child who's sort of following the other children around. You know, are you my mummy? She's we you know first we're told that she lost her little brother Jamie um, in mm-hmm. an air raid. He wandered out and and was killed. Um, and and you know we're left with the clear implication that this child is somehow connected to to, to uh, Jamie. You know wh- whether he's. Um, yeah, later it's it's made very clear this is Jamie. Right. Um mm-hmm. but but then there is an even deeper secret that we don't find out till the very end. Right. I mean, we could talk about it uh since we're not going step by step, but that, you know, that mm-hmm. Jamie turns out to be not uh Nancy's brother, but her actually her son, even he doesn't know that uh that she's his mother. Uh right. she, she's apparently a teen mom. Um, right. And, uh, you know, the, this explains why she wasn't in the countryside with the other kids, why they were, you know, they were uh, essentially outcasts from society. Mm-hmm. And, well, uh, and she she would have been like it said at the end of the show, she would have been 20, 21 years old. She wouldn't have been a kid anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. She was old enough to, to stay in the city and, you know, wasn't going to send Jamie out alone. And, and so there's this this. Sort of, and, and she, and just to underscore a point, I mean, you mentioned it, Dom, but she has not told Jamie her, her true relationship to him. Right. Jamie thinks he's her little brother, which is mm-hmm. her way of protecting him from the knowledge that he was born to an unwed teenage mother, right. and protecting him from the social shame of that in the 1940s. And so he does not know who his mother is and one of the, and the overarching question in his life all this time has been who is my mother because he doesn't know he thinks he's Correct. just living with his sister it's very interesting to have these two episodes back to back an episode about finding your father and an episode about finding your mother so we had father's day mm-hmm. last week mo- yeah. and, and mother this week and this essential uh, question of identity you know my identity is is wrapped up in my who my who are my parents? Where do I come from? And I kind of like this is because Nancy, in some ways, represents you know a young woman who's running from the reality. In one sense, she's tied to this the shame that she carries being mm-hmm. a single mom in 1941. You know, a single teen mom, um, but is still connected to it. It still follows her in that very real sense, but in a symbolic sense as well. well and she doesn't it's she's not she's not saved and everyone isn't saved until she embraces her motherhood right well but at the same time she's acting as a mother to all these children yeah. teaching them manners getting them food getting them shelter making sure they're taken care of and so on she's really following that motherly instinct right 
even though she's not wanting to embrace the fact that she is the mother. That's right. So it's this beautiful story. I find it beautiful of, Mm -hmm. you know, the mother's love saves the day. You know, last last time it was a a father's love saving the day. And this time it's a mother's love saves the day. So there you've put your finger on something I was going to mention. Mother love ex mahina is it's something that, you know, I guess is okay here, but it is such a trope that gets (laughs) overused. I mean, Harry Potter, the mother love is what saves the day. And um, and in the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe Christmas special ripoff. (laughs) <laughs> it's mo- in, of Doctor Who. It's mother mm-hmm. love that saves the day, and it's it's just such a cliche. I it, it here it sort of works, although I, in terms of plot mechanics, it really doesn't. And we can talk about that. Um, but it 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 it. While I I can't say that I never want to see this element in stories, because sure, mother love is a great thing. It just gets presented in such a as such a sentimental deus ex machina solution to things. <laughs> and and I think that really happens here because the doctor when since, since we're not following chronological order, um at the end of the two parter, when the the doctor has realized that there that what that metal thing was was an mm-hmm. ambulance from an alien war that fell to Earth, and it was filled with uh, nanotechnology, which for some reason they call nanogenes. It doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not genes. They're robots. Um, so they're either nanobots or nanites or whatever you want to call them. But they've been they, – they locked on to Peter, the little boy, when he was – killed in the air raid and they didn't know what a human looked like because they're not human tech and they assume for some stupid reason the gas mask was part of him even though it's made of rubber and they then started remolding human beings in his image including the broken mental stuff they couldn't read his dna and you know it doesn't make any sense and then the doctor is afraid this is going to happen to everybody in the world and what happens then is he he tells Nancy to go embrace this child and show her mother love for him and tell him the truth. And and that somehow fixes the situation. Now, after the magical special <laughs> effects happen and mother love has saved the day, they then kind of put the pieces together and say, oh, well, they recognize that she's the mom. And so realize, oh, I guess he doesn't need the gas mask. And we can use her DNA as a guide for what humans should look like, whereas we couldn't have used the DNA of the child or anybody and else ha- and, or anybody <laughs> else. All of those other people you converted. And and wait a minute. OK, <laughs> if if suddenly she's the mom and, you know, this is a sexual species, maybe fathers have gas masks, you know, it, <laughs> right. No, right. None exactly. Of this, none of this makes makes any sense. And it's so it. I, I'm not opposed to mother love saving the day in principle, but it needs to make sense. Right, right. It was uh, it, especially when you've got the, the two part episodes, two two whole episodes to make the case. There, there was there was enough extra in these episodes that you could have cut some of that other stuff. Yeah. And really, frankly, they could have mm-hmm. cut out Captain Jack and and oh, yeah. and, and done uh, the whole story here. Yeah. Um. I just I think Moffat loves his creation of Captain Jack enough that uh, he wanted to to play with that uh, character. Do, 
Do either of y'all know if they were planning on making Torchwood a thing at this point? Because that's where Captain Jack really becomes a, a leading. Character. I don't think so. I don't know for sure, but I would be surprised. Yeah, because now that I think about it, they don't introduce the Torchwood Institute until season two of Doctor Who. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think I think it's uh, more a matter of they liked uh, uh, Captain Jack enough to bring him into another into another series. Mm-hmm. I think well, that I was wonder too if it, there's also the fan reaction to Captain Jack. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of fans that really connect that really liked him and really wanted to see more of him. Well, and he is he is fun in this two parter. He's not nearly as annoying as he later comes to yeah. be. Yeah. Um, yeah. By the way, other aspects since I'm criticizing the climax and how it works, you have <laughs> um, the Doctor after he's realized after the the initial fix has been done. There's still a question of how do we resolve all these nanites, and the Doctor uses a software patch to shut them all down, which immediately raises the question: Once you knew they were they were nanites that were programmable why didn't you use a software patch the first time to reprogram we have to reprogram them why do we have to go through all this mother love business um also when he does this he like does this magical gesture like he's casting a spell and we see the nanites kind of in as a kind of special effect flowing from his arms. And this is just wizardry. This is not how software patches are applied. <laughs> mm-hmm. That is true. Well, you could use the Sonic, uh, yeah. <laughs> which apparently yeah. setting 2187A is for healing uh, barbed yeah. wire. <laughs> there's there's, there's also, um, yeah, I like the barbed wire thing. There's also um, a uh, another line in here that is part of the politicization of Doctor Who, um, we, and there have always been political elements in Doctor Who. It reflects its times. Mm-hmm. You know, back during the John Pertwee era, they had worker strikes and stuff that got reflected on the show. Um, but there's this kind of triumphant where the Doctor is rejoicing in his victory at the end. He's he's like shouting about, oh, and don't forget the welfare state. Exactly. And it's like, come on, dudes. So I, I want to make sure we take time to talk about uh the Captain Jack storyline, um, because mm-hmm. he's he becomes such a big uh, figure in the uh, the Doctor Who uh, universe. Um, you know, he we are introduced to him. Rose is saved by him because she's hanging from the barrier balloon. Um, he has been posing as a uh, uh, an aviator, uh, American uh, a volunteer uh, with the British. Um, He's a, he, who can apparently come and go from his unit as he pleases. Apparently, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, he's in, and then, but in reality, he's a rogue uh, time agent, uh, which we don't X find out. Time in, agent, X time agent, which we don't really find out anything more about. I mean, they sort of dropped uh, this idea in there, and we don't get anything in these episodes uh, from it. Uh, and he's looking to sell this alien warship that he found, which he, you know he's claimed to be a warship. Um, which is really he, you know, a hunk of junk um, war ambulance that he plans to destroy once it gets paid anyway. Uh, or it's going to be he knows it's going to be destroyed in the Nazi blitz. A, a bomb is going to fall on it and destroy it. And his scam is he thinks the doctor and Rose are time are, are time agents. He wants mm-hmm. to sell them the ambulance and then oops, it gets conveniently destroyed before they can take possession. Exactly. And they, and they never know it was a scam. Right. Right. Uh, and, and meanwhile, he's infected the entire planet with this. Uh, are you my mummy virus? Um, yeah, unintentionally. <laughs> yes. 
Uh, and apparently Jack has used various disasters, natural and otherwise, throughout Earth's history to run these cons, including Pompeii, which we know that the doctor was at. So that's kind of a, a funny. Um, More than once. Yes. Yep. <laughs> so there's a lot yeah. of a lot of these time agents running around Pompeii during the disaster. By the way, there's some nice I, I wanted to compliment since I kind of cast some shade on the ending of this. I wanted to I wanted to compliment some of the bits leading up to it. Um, you know, we mentioned the children and I like them. Uh, but there's also some really nice dialogue and some nice banter between mm -hmm. the doctor and Jack and Rose. Um, I love how when he meets the two of them together for the first time, Jack like comments on their bizarre clothing, you know, that yeah. the the time agent as time agents he thinks they don't understand what how you should really dress in this period. So mm -hmm. Rose is wearing this bizarre Union Jack t-shirt in the 1940s. Meanwhile, the doctor is dressed as a U-boat captain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and it did be Christopher Eccleston's costume does totally look like yep. a U-boat captain. <laughs> so so I like that. Um, also, we have a reference to something that's going to come back in Twice Upon a Time, the very last Stephen Moffat story, because uh, the doctor notices that Jack's square gun pistol that shoots square holes in things yep. was made uh, at the foundries of Villengard, which is a great name. Um, mm -hmm. And he, he mentions that the foundries are no longer there. He visited. The implication is he blew them up. There's now a banana grove. Mm -hmm. And um, and so discussions of the villain guard foundries come back in uh, twice upon a time. So we have a connection between the very first mm. Stephen Moffat story and the very last. And also we get uh, nicely in this episode, the doctor at one point pulls out a banana and from the villain guard banana grove and is using it as a imitation weapon. That's nice. Um, we also have this weird. um discussion that starts to happen between the doctor and Rose about dancing, which is the title and, of the second episode. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The doctor dances. And at first it seems like, you know, just it, it's take seems to be taken on a kind of straightforward level. Like dancing is some thing that hip young people like Rose do. Mm -hmm. She wouldn't expect a fuddy duddy like the doctor to have done it. But he says, look, I'm 900 years old. You can expect that at some point in there I've danced. And they actually start to do a little bit of a, of a couple's dance. Um, I think the music at that point may be in the mood, which was a Glenn mm -hmm. Miller classic. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and from the period, uh, and so there it, at first it's literal dancing they seem to be talking about. But as the episode goes on, dancing seems to be used as a metaphor for sex. Or, and they and right. that later becomes quite clear that that's that they're now using it in this double entendre sense. Right. It starts off with Rose saying that Jack is like the doctor, except with dating and dancing, because she's obviously mm -hmm. attracted to him. This whole boyfriend yeah. thing sort of comes up when. Jack uses psychic paper on her. Um, and, the, and like you said, oh, the doctor that, says, oh, that's that's really nice with Jack's use of psychic paper. One, because Rose oh. knows what it is. Yep. And two, because of the revealing things that Jack and Rose say to <laughs> yeah, each exactly. other by the psychic paper. Right, right. She's uh, she has a boyfriend, but uh, considers herself very available. Um, the, the, you know, the doctor says so the, the doctor responds to this, like her comment 
almost a little jealously, uh, with a little je- jealousy. Um, I dance, like you said, uh, I've been around 900 years. You can assume I've danced. Um, and it's when, later on, as, as usual, when Jack is on the show, homosexuality is a major component. Um, apparently Jack is bisexual, pansexual, uh, nothing here, holds him back. It's fairly minor. Yeah. Compared well, to later. Well, except to this relationship with this one British officer. He right. says, uh, relax, he's a 51st century guy. Uh, the doctor says about Jack, he's a 51st century guy. He's just a bit more flexible when it comes to dancing. When Rose mm. gets, is taken aback when she sees that Jack is going after this uh, British officer um, in in that manner. Uh, and that's where it really becomes apparent that we're not talking about dancing anymore. Um, right. Also, this this makes no this is just Russell T. Davies cultural trajectory sensibilities. It, the idea that in the 51st century, people are going to be having sex with anything doesn't really wash. I mean, think of all the alien viruses there are out there. Mm. Yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> so, I, I mean, that's one of my my problems with Captain Jack as a character. I, I just don't like. I'm, I'm, I'm not, it's not about being a prude. I just don't like the constant that, that the, this character is one dimensional and has one, was apparently one motivation. Um, and it's why I never got past the first yeah. episode of Torchwood. Yeah, it, right. it's it's not so much he's bisexual. It's he's one note. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't know if you had something on yeah. that, Father Corey. Well, I, I was just thinking of, you know, the doctor, the doctor dancing. Of course, at the last scene, it's, hey, I remember now how to dance. And of course, they have this great little cut the rug there in the TARDIS right. console room. All mm-hmm. I can think of those. And I want to do this as a meme where, hey, I just remembered how to dance. And then you have Matt Smith with his orangutan dance. <laughs> his arms. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, it, it just it seems weird to me that they this is that's what they decided to name the episode. The doctor dances. And I'm trying yeah. to understand. I never, I've never understood. Like, I get the empty child; that makes sense. But I've never understood why they decided to focus on the doctor dances here. Um, I, I, I think prob- possibly because there's no major new conceptual things that get introduced that you could mention without spoiling a plot point. Well, and so they they chose to focus on the doctor as like this is a more humanizing thing for the doctor. Uh, right. To cover this aspect of his character, part part of it too. I wonder if, kind of almost like the bringing the the doctor seeing joy again after the mm-hmm. the horrors of the time war and all the people yeah. who have died through his journeys. All of a sudden, now he's got this one adventure where everybody lives. You know, and there's dancing joy. can be a metaphor for that joy. Yeah. You know? yeah. And so I think that's that. That's just my opinion. Why why that that title was picked because it it just shows you know. The doctor's starting to come out of that, yeah. out of the and, horrors. And given, given the double entendre that they establish in the show itself for dancing, it could be just that Russell T. Davies and, Steve, and or Stephen Moffat wanted to hit the audience with that double entendre <laughs> right in the title. Right, that could be true, too. So um, a couple other things I want to mention. Speaking of uh, uh, mauve in red, uh, I did mm-hmm. notice that the alarm on the ambulance at the end was blinking red. So apparently oh. everything's nothing's bad. <laughs> it's just everything's campy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, speaking. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was going to move to something different, but go ahead. Well, speaking of things at the end um, and hitting the audience with things, uh, we have some really bizarre stuff 
at the end with Captain Jack and the ending. So number one, the Nazi bomb that's supposed to fall on the ambulance and destroy it is something Captain Jack grabs just like he with a tractor beam, just like he grabbed Rose. And he's actually riding the bomb. And yes. you you cannot have someone writing a bomb without people <laughs> instantly thinking of Slim Pickens in Doctor yep. Strangelove. Exactly. Yep. So this just pops the audience, you know, in a sense, right out of that story and are thinking about another movie if you've seen it. Yeah. Um it's the iconic bomb writing scene. Mm-hmm. And um and so it you know, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And then the Jack so we have an implication that Jack is going to ride this bomb somehow to some place where it can safely explode. And then he like says goodbye to the doctor and Rose calls this out later and says, why did he say goodbye? And that's actually a good question. Why, why does Jack have to be riding this bomb to begin with? Why can't he just tractor beam it somewhere that it can explode safely? Um, you know, this doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And then, th- so we have this implication that Jack, for no apparent reason, is throwing his life away. And he actually then gets off the bomb. We cut away to him on his ship towing, you know, the bomb in space. And various things have broken for reasons of plot convenience. Mm-hmm. And he's now going to, he's inside the ship. He's not on the bomb anymore, but he's now going to die with it all. Yep. And if he could get off the bomb, and if he knew that was he would that was his plan, why is there the implication that saying goodbye means he's going to die? Um, which is is the implication that Rose has with the Doctor, and then of course they they merge the TARDIS with his ship temporarily. They dock it and get him off before <laughs> it blows up, and he takes way too long shutting those doors. Yes, I agree. Um, <laughs> but uh, but this is just, it feels like it's kludged together. I mean, I wonder yeah. if possibly in the original script he was going to die, and this added scene was to allow them to bring the character back, because he then becomes a sort of companion for the rest of the series. Mm-hmm. That's true. I, I think I think that might be the the case. They liked the character; they wanted to keep him around, um, and they added the scene on. You know, one well, last like you said, yeah. like you said, Stephen Moffat doesn't like to kill off characters, so yeah. that's true. So, just one last point. I mean, this this could open up a whole another um, longer discussion that we don't really have time for. But uh, I did want to remark how the doctor says, "You know, what's life? Life is easy. It's a quirk of matter. Nature's way of keeping meat fresh." What a, it's a very nihilistic viewpoint mm-hmm. and yeah. I'm not something that the doctor sounds like later on. And maybe part of this, you know, the, the, the darkness of in the, in the, in the ninth doctor. That, post time war. Yeah. Right. Post time war. So still oh, dealing very, with that. It very much is an atheistic view of, you know, it's just, you know, life right. exists because of happenstance and universal laws, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Right. And of course, this occurs, he says it's just before the, um, the, uh, you know, the very end where everybody lives and he's very joyful. So maybe it's part of that. So I think that's a, that's part of, all. Part of his redemptive arc in terms of outlook. Mm-hmm. Right, right. right. Uh, so um, I think that's all that needs to be said about the, these uh, two episodes. Um, uh, you know, uh, very definite uh, diff- points of view on, uh, on, on the quality of the episodes and whether we like them or not. Um, what do you think? You let us know. Did you? Is this one of your favorites? Uh, or are you, are you with Jimmy that it's got those big flaws that keep him from being uh, the, one of the best? Um, 
let us know what you think of Empty Child and Dr. Dances uh, by going to sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page. Leave us some feedback or send us an email to Who at sqpn.com. You can find links to all our personal social media and our websites on our show notes, which will be on sqpn.com. We'll be back next week when we'll be discussing, what are we discussing, Jimmy? The Genesis of the uh, Daleks. Genesis of the Daleks, yeah. And that takes us back to which Doctor? Fourth Doctor. That's a fourth Beginning Doctor. Beginning of the fourth Doctor. Okay. Uh, so, and if you want to you watch that beforehand, uh, those are available on BritBox.com. Um, mm-hmm. You can get a, a, a one-month trial subscription if you just want to try it out. Um, I like to subscribe for a while, watch stuff that while we're do, talking about them, and then unsubscribe so I'm not carrying it uh, as, a, uh, as a subscription. But anyway, so next week is the Genesis of the Daleks. Until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining us in the sharing of the Secrets of Doctor Who. Glad to be here. And Jimmy, thank you as well. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening. And remember, the world doesn't end because the Doctor dances. When will I see you again? Uh, soon, I expect. Or later. One of those.